Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. Glad to see you guys here. Beautiful Sunday afternoon. Thanks for spending it with us. We are in part two of a series we're calling More. It's a, a series on stuff and all of the things in life that make us feel like we're winning. And oftentimes it comes down to uh, what we feel, what we don't know the answer sometimes is what, what's, what does it take to make you happy and uh, fulfilled in life? And we're like, well, this thing, this thing, and then we get it and then it doesn't. And we think, well, maybe that wasn't it. So maybe the answer, a safe answer is always more. That's just the answer. More than I currently have. That's always just a really generally safe answer to figure out what is it going to take to be satisfied in life. I want to start off today. Well, first of all, this is part two. If you missed week one, uh, you can go to a website called eastlaketricities.com slash talks. If you go there, you can catch up on last week's talk or follow along with the series for the next, I think, three weeks as we kind of continue this thing. But... um, I read a, uh, a book by a guy named Chuck Klosterman. He is an author, one of my favorite kind of modern day takes on pop culture and social theory and all that kind of stuff. He used to write for Spin Magazine, he writes for, and then Grantland for a while with Bill Simmons, and now he writes for The Ringer, amongst other popular things, and he publishes some books. He just came out with book X, Chuck Klosterman X. Um, but this one that I've been reading uh, recently is a little bit different. It's a, from a few years ago, from 2004. Um, but in it, he talks about something that was kind of a modern phenomenon at that time, and this is going to kind of date some of us, but how many of you guys remember the video game called The Sims? Anybody remember The Sims? Let me explain to you The Sims, because I grew up, I'm a little older than maybe some of you, and younger than some of you too, but I grew up with Sim City, which used to be on floppy disks. You don't even know what those are, some of you. Um, and you would put it into your Apple II computer, and it would then create, actually, I don't think it was Apple II. I think it was even past that, but like super two-bit graphics, if there was such a thing. Uh, and you, it was like the future, um, it would be like the all, how to run a city, Sim City. Um, and for all you future city planners, it was like the game. <clears throat> um, but then they made it more personalized. Instead of building this ambiguous, non-personalized city, and I don't know what platform this originally came out on. I can't remember, but I do remember it became personal. Like it, it wasn't the city now, it was a family or a person. You created your own individual character. And so Klosterman writes about this. He said he went to go visit his brother and his little niece was playing this new Sims game and he sat down and he's like, explain this. I saw, I saw her, she was obsessed with it. And he's like, explain this game to me. And, and he watched after a while and he realized she was playing imaginary characters and doing all of these things in, in, like, in life for these people that, that weren't like, like most video games are, I'm controlling a character who can spit fire or jump really high or can fly, like, you know, video game superheroes. This was somebody who would go to work, saved up a bunch of money to buy stuff for their house, would sleep, need to go to the bathroom, all of those things. And he's like, you know that that's just like, you, <laughs> this is like real life, this is you. And, and, and why, do you, why is this so obsessive to you? And then he watched her play, and then he said, I went home that weekend, and I went out and bought the game for myself, and I created my own Simchuk, because that's his first name. So Sim, Simchuk, and I, and I bought him, I began to buy him stuff, and he goes, I realized early on that he was kind of mopey and kind of depressed all the time until I would buy him things. Then I, he said he was tired. He was constantly tired. So I bought him a $1,000, again, video game money, a $1,000 bed for my Simchuk. And he goes, meanwhile, I'm sleeping on a mattress on the floor in my apartment. I don't even personally own a bed, 
But when I bought Simchuk a bed, his happiness quotient went up by a full six points. He began to be happy and more well-rested and more able to stay awake at work without falling asleep on the table. And I felt a sense of fulfillment out of that. So then I begin to shop for other things for Simchuk. And look, and lo and behold, lucky for me, there was a full catalog of items I could buy with detailed descriptions, with using fake money to buy from my fake person. And he says, and I begin to feel good about purchasing things for Simchuk. When he was happy, I was happy, right? <laughs> let, me, let me read you this description. He goes, the reason so much effort has been placed in the promotion of fake Sims merchandise, because he says the catalog was detailed. It wasn't like bed, $500. It was like plush bed with duck feathers. And, you know, and it would be describing a plasma TV, 1080p, with six HDMI inputs. He's like, listen, this is a video game. You should not have spent that much, that much time on detail. And they did. The reason that they do it is so that it's real-life players will enjoy the experience of buying them. It's almost circular logic. If a human playing The Sims somehow enjoys pretending to buy a plasma TV that doesn't even exist, it stands to reason that my little Simchuk would profoundly enjoy watching said TV if it were somehow real. By this justification, buying high-end electronics really should cure depression. What The Sims suggests is that buying things makes people happy because it takes their mind off of being alive, having them buy things, even in a fictional sense. No real money is exchanged. No real object is purchased. But there's a little shot of dopamine that goes into our brains that goes, "Ah, now isn't that better? (laughs) Because it makes, it takes our mind off of being alive. And here's how he concludes it. I would think this would actually make them feel worse, but everyone I've ever dated seems to disagree. He writes that part, not me, right? Now, look, I want you to notice real quickly the title of the book in which this article comes from, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. I found myself reading this book at McDonald's, and before you judge me, it was a grilled chicken sandwich, so it's okay. I'm sitting there, and I am literally in in a public space. It's like right across the street here, so it's like the easiest, fastest, I'm cheap, all of those things factor in. I walk across, I sit down, and I eat my food, and I'm, I'm reading this book, and I find myself like giggling, like, a, like it's, there's some really, really funny, insightful stuff in here. And I never laugh at like anything out loud. Like I'll watch SNL and be like, that was hilarious. And I'm stoic the whole way through. But, like looking back on it, it's really funny. But um, anyways, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm reading this and I'm laughing. And this little lady comes along. She's got her little McDonald's outfit on, her little, her little visor. You know what I mean? She walks up. She's like, can I take your plate and, or your tray thing? And I was like, yeah, yeah, thank you very much. And she takes and she goes, looks like you're really enjoying um, your reading right now, right? She's trying to strike up some conversation. I'm like, I'm trying to look up and be kind and whatever, thoughtful. And I, I say, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And she goes, what is that? And I, and I show her the cover of this book and it's sex. It's got a picture of a bowl of cereal, but instead of cereal, it's drugs and it's sex, drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. And she goes, oh, <laughs> like the mood immediately changed. And uh, I was like, move along, please. I got to get back to my book, and then I got to go be a pastor for a little bit. So, uh, so, so in light of all of this, in light of Simchuk and his purchases and that little feeling of like fake buying, but it, 
it, it still translates. It still works, at least to some degree. The question that we asked last week when it comes to the answer of more is simply this. What is it that you really want in life? What is it that you really want in life? We said this, that uh, sometimes we miss out on what we really want because we're distracted by what we want. We think we know what we want, uh, and, but yeah, when we get it, it's, it doesn't do the things that we want it to do, and we don't walk away feeling like that's uh, really what we wanted, and so we go, okay, that's not what I really wanted, but that's now what I want, and it just like, it keeps to be this moving target, and it's dumb. And uh, what we said was lurking in the shadows of what we want is what we value. Looking in the sh- lurking in the shadows of what we want is what something we value, and what we value is what we consider to be important. We would say, this is what is important to me. This is what I want my family to act like. This is what I want my, to, my wife or husband to look like or act like or be like, or this is what my, my personality uh, to be like, or this is where I want to live. This is what I want to drive. This is what I want to do for work. This is what I want people to think of me. When they think of me, when words are said about me, good things, bad things, I just don't want it to be no things. I, when, I, when, when I leave some sort of a legacy, this is what is of value uh, to me. What is it that we value? That's really the next question. That's probably a better question, by the way. Not is it what you really want, but what if we actually follow that to its conclusion leads us to ask the question, well, then what is it that you really value? And you can't flip these around, by the way, because if I were to ask you, what is it that you value? You would have only positive things to say. You would have really like good character building things, integrity, honesty, love, compassion, generosity. We, we know the right answer, especially because you're in church and you're like, you're a pastor. Uh, and so I, I feel like I got to say stuff about, I'm, I don't know what the right answer is, but Jesus sounds like a pretty good one and, and more Bible time and devotions. And you're like, you're like, wow, whatever. And you get on the car and uh, whatever, right? So th- th- we, I, I get it. I, I understand that. That we, we, uh, if I was to ask you what it is that you value, um, you'd have definitely a big answer. But a better question is, what is it that you want? Because you want to reveal your values. All right. Now, when it comes to this, here's the thing about understanding what it is that you value: is nobody can make this decision for you. Nobody can decide or answer this question for you. What is it that you value? This is a very internal, personal, self-defining question. What is it that you are looking at in life and really want out of life? And, and you don't discover this by accident. You don't discover what you really value in life by accident. And slightly more controversially, I don't think you do valuable things by accident. Here's what I mean by that. Like when we say, when we prop up all of these things that are, are important and we, we feel like are special and this is what we want to be known for, um, oftentimes we don't we don't default into those kinds of modes of thinking. We default into things that we want, things that are more immediate. We would say we value things that are more ultimate, but we live our lives in a pattern that pushes us towards the immediate. And oftentimes we sacrifice the ultimate for things that are immediate in this way. Now, um, I know that that can be like, you can, you can hear this, and what I'm going to talk about today is a passage that talks about how you tend to, no, you don't tend to, the author of what we're talking about says, you left by yourself, if you got your own way every single time, um, you would oftentimes get in your own way of uh, acquiring or inheriting the future that you want. If you are left on your own, it will not be a good thing for 
you. That our natural default is towards ourself and towards selfish and what we're going to look at today, sinful type of activity. Now, I want to place a caveat on that. It sounds very negative. It sounds like I'm making an accusation on you. So I want you to know I like you too much, and I want you to, more importantly, I want you to like me. So I, that's not what I'm going to say. I'm going to say we tend to do this like this can happen. Paul, as we're going to discover, says this is what happens. He doesn't allow any gray area. I'm going to give you some gray area when I talk. Usually, oh, you tend to. This kind of usually tends to happen because I like you too much, and I want you to like me. But there's a hot take from Paul where he does not allow for any space like this. He is going to say, no, this is human nature. And he writes it from an autobiographical standpoint, as we're going to look at today. He's basically saying, this is me, but more importantly, this is not just me. This is a little bit about us. Let's talk about the human psyche and the human personality and what it means for us collectively. This is an all skate in terms of what Paul is talking about, all right? So Paul is writing a letter to a church in Rome. It's called the book of Romans. It's a very in-depth book. Um, the, the history behind the Roman church is that um, it got started uh, just about 30 or 40 years after the, the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul never, we don't really find out in scripture who started the Roman church. Maybe some people like moved there from some other cities and, and then begin to talk about who this Jesus character was, what he stood for, what he taught, and who, and, and the fact that he rose from the dead and was um, the uh, very incarnation of God. But a lot of times what we find out in the, newer, in the early churches through scripture is Paul goes to Corinth. He goes to Thessalonica. He goes to Philippi, starts churches, writes letters back and forth. That's why we get Thessalonians. That's why we get the Corinthians. That's why we get Galatians. But in Romans, Paul doesn't go to this church. He probably doesn't even know these people. He's writing as an apostle from a, from a leadership standpoint, from a structural leadership standpoint of the church, but not with any personal connection to these people. And so what we find is not a lot of stories. That be, a lot of his other story goes, you know, I, Paul, apostle of Christ, greet you, brothers and sisters, especially sister this, sister so-and-so, sister, you know, brother so-and-so who did this and that and the other thing. In Romans, he just dives right in, and his language tends to be a little bit more um, philosophical. It's almost like he's trying to impress them or not waste any time with, you know, superlatives or anything like that. He's, he's going in full bore, and, and he's trying to uh, lead them into a better understanding of who we are in Christ, who we were pre-Christ, and all that kind of stuff. So Romans chapter 7 uh, shows us um, a, a little bit about our status as just kind of human beings in relation to a perfect God. It comes in a section, Romans 6 through 8, so 6, 7, and 8, kind of do like this long path towards uh, creation, the depth of, of the sins of man, and then restoration, you know, that God calls us his children in Romans chapter 8. Um, so uh, it, it, it's going to seem a little bit dark. It's a subset from a very, uh, a very more complete section, but I think it's important for us, and we're going to look at another section like that a little bit later on. But Romans chapter 7, verse 15, here's what it says. Now, here's the warning again. It's going to feel a bit like a friend who's been waxing philosophical and probably needs a bottled water on the next round of drinks and not anything else, okay? It's also going to sound a little bit Dr. Seussy, okay? So if you like Dr. Seuss, you're in for a treat. Here we go. For what I am producing, I do not know. I do not like green eggs and ham, right? For what I am producing, I do not know. Another translation is this. I don't know what it is that I do. I don't know what it is that I'm doing. I don't know what, or my translation, Brent's translation, I don't know what the heck I'm doing in life, which is, it brings it down to super relatable for each and every one of us. We have all done some things. We're on the drive home and on the walk home, and the next day, the, the next morning, and we wake up, and we go, what the heck was I thinking? 
In fact, here's what I want you to do. I want, to turn, I want you to turn to three people right now and tell them one thing that you did. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make you do that, right? Like this confession. But here's the thing. If I asked you to turn to somebody and be like, the last time I did something, I was like, wow, what in the world was that about? I can't believe that I did that. You would not have to go back that far, would you? You would not be like, well, six years ago, back when I was 18, I mean, it was college, right? And then your, your spouse or boyfriend's elbowing you going, you mean Friday? You know what I mean? Like, we don't have to go back all that far to realize I don't, if I could go back and change something, I would because I don't know what I was thinking. Why did I wear that? Why did I buy that? Why did I say those things? Why did I think those things? Why did I watch that? Why did I act like that? Um, we have plenty of things that we would say, I don't know what the heck it is that I'm doing, which leads us to this question, why don't you do what you want to do? Because a lot of times we, we think about it and we go, I didn't want to do that, but I found myself doing that. Nobody walks away going, that's what I want to do, and then I did it, and so be it, bring on the consequences, who cares? For the most part, we walk away going, dang it, and we have regrets, because we know we don't want to do it, and yet we find ourselves doing it. Then he goes on, for this, or for it, is not what I will, this I am practicing, but what I am hating, this I am doing. In other words, I have things that I want, I have things that I will, this is what I know I want to do, and I find myself practicing it, but come game time, I don't find myself doing. For what I hate, then I find myself doing. I want to do this, I practice, I practice, I practice, but then when push comes to shove, I end up doing the thing that I hated. This is the classic, if you've ever um, coached in high school sports or, or kid sports, or maybe you've been a student athlete at some point, and the worst thing you can hear from your coach is, man, you practice well, but come game time, you just can't fit it all together. You, you've, you've heard some people talk about, about athletes before. Man, they look fantastic on the practice field, but then come game time, it's just like they're a different person. It just doesn't register. It's like every Mariner since 2001. That's basically what we're talking about here. And when we own that, when it's in us, we find ourselves saying to ourselves, I settle for less than I want, and I end up hating that part of me. I know what I want, and yet I don't do the thing that I want, even though I practice it. I end up doing the thing that I hate, and I kind of hate that language, that hate language means, or kind of reveals this attitude towards it. I hate that piece of me. I hate that part of me. And that's really only about a half inch away from hating than what I see in the mirror. And it becomes this wrestling match and this constant struggle that Paul begins to describe in the life of possibly a, a Christian, uh, somebody who's struggling with this, even, even with in Christ or pre-Christ or whatever. He's like, listen, this is just human nature. We battle with this constantly. Verse 16, now if I'm doing what I do not will, I agree with the law that it is good. Let me explain that because that one's a little, that one's a little bit out there and, and doesn't make a lot of sense. But the law essentially was given from a New Testament standpoint, the Old Testament, the Torah, was given as an example to prove why you can't make it on your own. An example to prove, listen, you can never be good enough to get to the spot where God would look at you and be like, you know what? We're pretty much equal partners. We're, you know, you're just as good as I am. And, and, and so this is kind of like a co-partnership type thing. He's like, no, no, this was, it was proven to show that we are in need of a savior, which then points us towards the Jesus narrative in, in, the, in the first part. So he says this, if I'm doing what I don't will, then all I'm doing is agreeing with the law and saying that that's true about me. 
it's impossible for me to be good enough. But, verse uh, 17, but now it is no longer I who am producing it, but sin dwelling in me, which at first glance sort of sounds like a cop-out, sort of sounds like that's not really me, the devil made me do it, sin made me do it. Or if you've ever heard um, uh, people who have been charged with acts of domestic violence and in their insanity, they say, well, she made me do this. You made me do this to you. And you're like, no, you did it, you freaking jerk. You know what I mean? Like, that's how, that's the, the, the concept that's going on here. He, he's saying, listen, um, uh, or I, I, I don't think what he's saying is that sin made me do this, and I am excused from my behavior because of that which lives in me. I think what he's trying to say is, if I'm ever tempted to say, well, that's not me, post me doing something stupid. If I'm ever tempted to say, well, that's not who I am, because how many times have we heard this? Somebody does something or says something stupid in our culture, and like they have to come up with this apology, <clears throat> Cam Newton, a few days later, and all of a sudden they say things like, well, that's not really me, that's not who I am. Paul would say, I can't, I can no longer use that as an excuse. That is who I am. That thing is in me. That's in me. Unfortunately, that probably is me. And I'm, I have a problem. I am a problem. And any time that it's not coming out of me, it's just because I, I am really good at filtering that out and creating an image of a person of what I want you to perceive me as. So Paul is saying, that's in me. Verse 18, for I know that the good does not dwell in me that is in my flesh, for the willing of the good is present within me or with me but the producing of the good is not. It's not that I don't want to be good, I do. Listen, um, churches uh, sometimes are notorious for preaching like this morality. Um, for people who are walking in, you're like, you, you guys need to start learning to, to you know, want to be a good person because obviously they're assuming that you want to choose to be bad. <laughs> the funny thing is, like nobody walked through the door this morning going, I'm reveling in the fact of me being bad. Everybody's like, I want to be a beneficial presence in the world. Paul is identifying with that, saying that's definitely true for all of us. We have this desire. We want to do good. But why is it that we find ourselves not doing the thing that we want to do? Even when you have a genuine desire to do what is right, because of the unbroken power of sin, that's what, this is the sin talk, if you will. If you're a Young Life uh, person growing up, this is the, this is the sin talk, right? This is the one where we, we, we go in this dark area talking about um, the effects of sin, which we don't like to hear, by the way. Our culture hates to hear about how we're broken. Tell me about how I'm good, Brent. That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I, unfortunately, I, it's not me talking. Remember, I like you, and I want you to like me. This is Paul talking. So um, even when you have a genuine desire to do what is right because of the unbroken power of sin, this striving after what is right can never take over the mind and will effectively, consistently direct your body to do what is good. Paul is saying, listen, constant daily struggle, not pointing the finger at you like, gosh, you are messed up. You're jacked up and you need some help. Looking at it internally, autobiographically saying, this is what I struggle and wrestle with all the time. This is part of who I am and why I'm broken. And by the way, this should make you feel so much better. This guy wrote half of the New Testament, you guys. All right? This did not disqualify him from thinking through and writing out wisdom for other people. And 
here's what, I, here's what we walk away with that I think Paul, as a result of this, is trying to communicate to us. That more is required than simple diagnosis. It's not enough to know what the problem is. It's not enough to be able to look back, reflect back, and go, okay, when I did that thing that was stupid, here's what happened, here's what I did wrong. Diagnosis is great, but it's not the cure. Diagnosis is fine, but it doesn't get us anywhere. And it's not enough to know then instruction on what we should have done in, as a result. Well, instruction is I should have done this, and I should have done this, and I should have done this. Listen, um, it's not enough to know, to know just the right thing. And knowing the right thing doesn't mean that we automatically do it. If to know the right thing was to do it, life would be easy. You know what else would be easy? Golf. I know what I'm supposed to do when I go golfing. I just can't do it. It's not helpful for you after my shot to be like, now here's what you wanted to do. You wanted to go down the middle of the fairway. Oh, is that what I wanted to do, genius? I think that's what I'm trying to do. It has nothing to do with desire or intention or resolve. I'm, you know what? I'm going to resolve to do better next time. Next time, instead of aiming out of bounds on the street, I'm, I'm going to resolve to go right down the middle of the fairway. Listen, diagnosis, instruction, resolve are all good things. I, I, you should definitely walk through those, but ultimately what Paul is trying to say is they don't amount to anything because you find yourself still doing the things that even though you want to do the right thing and you practice and you practice and you practice, I find myself doing the thing that I hate. Then, in a different letter to a different church at a different time, um, he writes a, a book to a church in Galatia. The book that we have is known as Galatians. In chapter 5, he's talking about human nature again and the fruits of a life lived under selfish ambition and selfish interests alone. He writes in chapter 5, verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. In other words, here's a good way to undermine your future. And he goes to a bunch of lists and he says, sexual immorality, which is basically not having any sort of moral code when it comes to your sexuality. Not having, well, I ought to do this, or I ought not to do this, but treating it as something completely ambiguous. Treating it as something selfish, I get what I want, and I don't really care about how the holistic effects of sex, and I don't really care how it affects another person. I'm the most important thing in this, right? Impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry. Um, idolatry is interesting because we don't use that word a lot, and if I had said, how many of you guys are tempted with idolatry? You'd be like, <laughs> I mean, no, no, nothing. I, I don't have any sort of... Um, image at my house or whatever. Um, we, we categorize idolatry as like uh, sacrificing to the, like some weird idols that we have heard about. But the reality is just things before people. Idolatry is always things before people. When you prioritize something over someone, that's idolatry. So if you've ever said to your kids, do not touch this, your life depends on it, right? When you wheel your bike in between mom and dad's car, if your handlebars scrape the side of daddy's new car, I'm going to kill you. You know what I mean? Now, caution, CPS would say, that's not the right language to use. I get it. I understand. I'm not actually going to do that. That's the words that come out of my mouth. And uh, th then that is essentially, uh, it reveals a deeper sense of idolatry, that this is more important than you. And, and it comes politically, too. I mean, there's always kinds of, my self-interest is more important than yours, uh, my ability to provide, yeah, anyways, I, I can't, I don't want to go into too much political stuff, but idolatry is a big deal. Sorcery, right? This is the one we just, whoop, I'll write that off, I'm not really into sorcery. But sorcery, in this instance, was essentially, um, I know something that you don't know, and I'm going to use it to manipulate 
you to do something that I want. I want something from you, and I'm going to manipulate you in some way. So all the witch doctors, all of the, the, the sorcerers in Scripture are always manipulating the people who don't understand how it all works. So for us, our sinful nature, when we find ourselves settling for not what we really want, but just something that we want, we find that manipulation is a tool that helps us to get the things that we want. Not what we really want, but something that we want. And so we find ourselves manipulating other people through things. See, we're not all that different. Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, that's an ugly one, isn't it? What is it that's inside of us that enjoys watching other people fail? We watch other people on social media, their new business that they're starting, their new entrepreneurial thing, and you're like, I kind of hope nobody shows up, kind of hope nobody buys it. We look at it and we, we stalk our exes on Instagram to see who they're now currently dating or currently married to, and then we have this look, looks contest with other people going, is she cute or is she not cute? She's not cute, right? Yeah, I didn't think so. See? And then we feel better about ourselves because he settled for her when he could have had me, Right? You sick freak, you. <laughs> Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, in, envy, and drunkenness. All of these destroy unequivocally, and all of these occur naturally. Paul says, listen, this stuff is inside of you. Nobody had to teach your kid to be deceitful. Nobody had to teach your kids to quarrel. You never sat down to your kids and go, all right, guys, we're going to learn how to fight today. You guys ready? You ready for this? She's going to take something that you want, and then you're going to ask for it back. She's going to say no, and you're going to start throwing things down. Ready, go. You know what I mean? Like, they just do that. They figure it out. Why? Because Paul would say that's just in us, because it feeds our self-ego and makes us the most important thing out of all of this. So what do you do with this? If Paul says to the Romans, you got a problem, it's in you, it's, it's in you, it's you, and then he says, and this is the expressions at which it looks like. How do you respond with this? Now, if you went back and read through Romans 8, and if you read through uh, the rest of Galatians, because a few verses later in Galatians, he goes into the fruit of the Spirit. But a, a, a life marked um, that is lived by the Holy Spirit results in fruit that comes out in the form of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. But in the book of James, James is, again, I'm coming back to James. I introduced him last week. He was the pastor of the Jerusalem church. He had some really insightful things to say to a group of Christians who were struggling in a culture that um, they experienced lots of persecution and not a lot of, um, the church was exploding in like Asia Minor and outside of Israel. Uh, but in Israel, it was, it was uphill sledding, man. It was tough sledding for these guys. And so he introduces kind of like this instructions on what it's going to take to kind of survive this thing and to be a Christian in this type of community. James chapter 1, verse 14. I want you to picture the imagery. James chapter 1, verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Dragged away. Has your mom ever showed up in a situation where you know you shouldn't have been there? She caught you. She didn't say any words to you. She grabbed you by the back of the neck, even though you're probably big enough that, to avoid this, Right? And you're fast enough to avoid it, you're strong enough to avoid it, but she somehow, superhuman strength, she grabs the back of your neck and drags you out of that car, <laughs> drags you out of that bedroom, drags you out of that bar, drags you out, and you're just like, the back of your neck, and you're like, ah, drug away with this. This is, what he's, this is the imagery that he's using. This is what happens. 
that thing that's inside of you, that sinful nature, man, it drags you where you don't want to be. Then he goes on. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. It starts with desire, it turns to sin. Sin when it's full grown gives birth to death, and death ultimately ends, uh, ultimately, or sin ultimately kills stuff. It kills relationships, it kills futures, it kills um, expectations, it kills hopes. And James ends then where I want to end, James 1, verse 16. He finally, or finalizes his thoughts with this. Don't be deceived. As a pastor writing to his congregation, he looks him straight in the eye. This is somebody who has been there for these people, right? Uh, he meets with them probably. They share a meal together. Uh, they take communion together. Um, he oversees their, their weddings. He does their funerals. He watches their kids. Um, he, he counsels them when they're going through difficulties in life. And he looks at them and he begs of them, don't be deceived. Listen, I don't want to watch you throw your life away. I don't want you to fall under the effects of sin, which is going to drag you away, blind you to what is most important, blind you to the things in value that you value in life, and destroy and ruin your future. And it's not enough to want to do the right thing. It's not enough to, to have these positive outlooks and this positive resolve, know the instruction, to be able to diagnose the problem. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't, sisters, don't trade ultimate for immediate. Don't trade valuable for natural. And instead of, instead of telling us what we should do instead, he almost wants to show you what it's doing to you. Um, because he doesn't want to... He doesn't want to put it up against this and go compare and contrast uh, this life versus this life. He just says, if, you're, if you were to take an honest reflection of where your sinful nature has gotten you in life, um, you can do this for yourself. You can see. This is pretty self-evident, whether you're religious or not. If you were to take personal inventory about where selfish, your selfish nature has led you to be, you could probably say, that's not really what I had in mind. Paul says, yep, exactly. I get it. And it leaves us crying out for a hope. It leaves us crying out for more. And I, I think that that is um, exactly what the purpose of this message and this time and this writing has been for us has been, I want, you to, I want you to sit and just focus for a week, right? I'm, I'm gonna leave you without any resolve today, just so you know. I'm not gonna give you like, well, here's what we get to do, and yay, and we're gonna all stand and clap for Jesus, and then we're gonna move on. It's not gonna be anything like that. I want you to languish in the pain of, of this, of our brokenness. And I say our because this is us, you guys. This is Paul saying it's me. This is Brent saying me too. And taking the advice of don't be deceived. Do you see what... Do you see what it's doing to you? Do you see what chasing after more is doing to you? Do you see what settling for what you want instead of what you really want is doing to you? Do you, have, you have you carried that out? Have you seen where that logic leads? Have you seen where that road leads? You keep doing that, you keep doing that. Is that where you want to end up? That's who you want to be like? And what we've, what we've said and what I've said is the beautiful thing about Scripture for us is I really, I really do feel like 
the teachings of Jesus, the invitation to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, points us towards the things in life that are truly, truly valuable and truly worth following. Now, you can agree to, to pass on that for now, right? You can, uh, we're a church that welcomes people from all different walks of life, and you don't have to be convinced this moment or whatever. I'm just telling you, that's, that's the platform by which if you come here and are a participant in what we do like this, that that's the, that's the assumption that I'm making. I want to point you towards something that's, that's bigger and better, because I really truly believe that following Jesus will make your life better and will make you better at life. Why? Because he'll point you towards the things that are ultimate and not towards things which are simply immediate. And every week, it'll be a struggle, and every week it's a battle, and every week we walk in, and we, we limp in, and we're like, all right, point, point me towards something. Lift my eyes up. Help me to see things that are ultimate. Remind me what is most important for me. So the question, or the, 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 the point, that, and this is what I, my prayer for every one of you, just like James would sit in front of his people and say, please, don't be deceived, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for all of us together that this is us, is, Father, give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see the implications and the how all of this plays out should I continue to allow this type of a lifestyle, all of those things that we listed up here, to continue, to let be unchecked in my life. So three closing questions that I think I, I pose them as discussion questions, that you start by figuring out for yourself what the answer is, and then you work through them, hopefully, with somebody that you know, love, care about. Uh, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a spouse or a girlfriend or boyfriend, or maybe it's a small group or something like that. Here's question number one. What is most important to you? What do you think are the things in life that you value most? Number two, what keeps dragging you away? Now, you may not answer this one honestly, to random people. Uh, you may not honestly to people that you care about because you're managing an image and you don't want them to know what keeps dragging you away. But you know this and you owe it to yourself and I think to God to be able to work through this on my own. To be honest about myself and go, I just keep allowing this stupid, stupid habit to keep dragging me away and dragging me away and dragging me away. And number three is this. How long do I, and notice the pronoun shift. This is now not you, 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 but then I, right? How long do I plan to let what I naturally want drag me away from what I ultimately want? What do you think? How long are you going to allow that thing to linger, to continue to drag you away from what you ultimately want because it's providing you with something that you think that you want? How long? Six months? Another year? Just until I get married? Until we have kids, until I'm on my deathbed, what is it? How long are you going to let it go? Um, the funny thing about this when it comes to just until I get married is there are some behaviors that we think, well, they'll stop when I say I do. <laughs> I do doesn't mean I magically stop doing the things that I'm currently doing. I may pause it for a while. Um, but eventually it rears its ugly head and it begins to destroy relationships just like it always has before. My prayer for you is don't be deceived. Give us eyes to see. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer, man. We, we so desperately are trying to navigate through life, trying to make sense of all of the things in life that are around us and, and going on with us, and um, 
forgive us for those times where we have, um, in spite of all the complicated nature of life in, in and of itself, made it even more difficult for ourselves, which is so stupid, um, by doing all the things that we know we don't want to do. And we wish that there was like this magic button we could push that would make all of that go away and give us good resolve moving forward, and it's just not there. I think that what you talk about is like it's this constant struggle through human nature. And so we ask, we beg, and we plead, and we live with this for a little while so that we can go, man, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do about this? Until we put ourselves in that spot, then we'll never really truly be open to hearing what it is that Jesus offers us. So I, my prayer for this week is simply that we would live with this, that we would allow this concept, this thought to linger, and that you would then put us in a position to be open and receptive to the hope that I think is provided through your son, Jesus Christ. So give us the wisdom to know what to do with all of this. Courage to act on it in your name. Amen.